Everybody, welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 14 of Till We Have Faces. And tonight uh, is a, a big night as we are looking to get to the end of book one. There are two books, of course, Until We Have Faces, uh, one of which is very much longer than the other. Uh, but that is not necessarily, let's just say I don't necessarily expect the proportion of our discussions to match the exact proportion of page numbers in the first and latter sections of the book. Um, so um, uh, we're... Um, yeah, I want to jump straight into it here tonight because my goal is to, I want to get through both chapters 20 and 21. I want to get I want to get to the end of book 1. This is going to be a hard um it's going to, chapter 21 is going to be a hard chapter to get halfway through. Uh so I'm skipping over some stuff that I would otherwise want to talk about um and uh, but because I mostly because I want to talk about almost all of the scene in which Orwell meets the priest of Istra, the the priest of Istra, um, and the conversation that they have, that is just a gorgeous I and mean, so brilliant what Lewis does in that chapter. Um, so I want to look in great. I'm not aiming to skip much of that whole scene. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna look at that pretty carefully, which means I want to I say jump straight in here. Um, <laughs> so let's, um, let's dig straight into it. So you remember that she was just going to kill Orwell. That was, uh, the last comment at the end of chapter 19. And in chapter 20 is when she gives the summary of her long and famous reign, which of course she begins, um, uh, you know, by downplaying the significance of her reign. She has become, within her own lifetime, a legendary figure. And she herself, she doesn't exactly set out to debunk it, because it's it's like she doesn't care enough about it, actually, to do any debunking. But she does speak rather scathingly of all of the legends and myths, even, that are told of her. And she uh, she says that she believes that stories about her deeds have been mixed up with stories of some other famous warrior queen from long ago, longer ago and further north uh, from where she was. Uh, and uh, anyway, so, you know, she's, she, the part of the life of Orwell of Gloam, which would surely take the vast majority of any, like, Glomian biography of her is the one that she not only is the is the part that she not only skips over but as I say does so in a sense with uh, with insult. Eric, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure what if if Lewis did have a particular warrior queen in mind. Um, yeah, Cal Elros is asking the same question. I'm not really sure whom it would be. Um, Especially the reference to it being someone further north is um, uh, it, it is tantalizing, right? Um, and uh, yeah, JJ, that's my problem too. Any warrior queens that I can... I mean, of course, 
given that the book is written and received in England, you know, first, of course, it's easy to think of like Legends of Queen uh, Queen Boudicca, of course, as I know that's not the right way to pronounce her name, but it's how it's been pronounced for a long time. Um, uh, so but I can't imagine that's too late. Right. That's certainly too late. Um, uh, the the uh, there would have been some reference to Rome, um, I would think, by the fox or something. Right. So, yeah, somewhere I, I, I have no idea. I, so I don't know if he has someone in mind specifically or if just in general he is using that reference as a way for Orwell to kind of bring up this context of the overlap between her life and myth, because, of course, that's going to sandwich these last two chapters. We begin with the very brief account of her epic reign. Um, and the mythic stories that have grown up around her, which, again, she acknowledges, insists even, that they've been greatly exaggerated and much confounded um, with other myths and stories. And, um, of course, in the end, we're going to see this culminate in her finding an actual myth, a a sacred story told in a temple, um, which, of course, is also mixed up with her life. Uh, in some ways. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, uh, uh, Eric, yeah, I, I'm not sure that we're supposed to figure out who the other queen is. It's possible that he had a particular one in mind, but I certainly don't think it's important which one it was. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyhow, let's, um, uh, Let's jump in. The very opening of chapter 20. On the next day, we burnt the old king. This is her father, (laughs) right? (laughs) She's rather blasé about that. On the day after that, we betrothed Redival to Trunia, and the wedding was made a month later. The third day, all the strangers rode off, and we had the house to ourselves. My real reign began. I must now pass quickly over many years, though they made up the longest part of my life, during which the Queen of Gloam had more and more part in me, and Orawal had less and less. I locked Orawal up or laid her asleep as best I could somewhere deep down inside me. She lay curled there. It was like being with child, but reversed. The thing I carried in me grew slowly smaller and less alive. Um, that is such a haunting image. Um, uh... Uh, also a, a, an, an oblique Shakespeare reference as well. There's a famous moment. I love saying about Shakespeare, there's a famous moment, as if there are many moments in Shakespeare that aren't in some sense famous. But um, anyway, there's a famous moment um, in, though it's, it is admittedly a famous moment in one of Shakespeare's least read plays, Richard II, um, in which the Queen's wife, um, Richard II's wife, the queen's wife is uh, foreboding bad news to come. And she's talking uh, with her one of her counselors um, named Bushy. And so this conversation between Bushy and the queen uh, uh, is, is a really cool moment in the play Richard II. And Shakespeare does this drawn-out conceit. Um, conceit, th- that being... a technical literary term uh, a conceit it's like a it's like an it's like a metaphor but it's extended 
Right. John Donne is this, this is like the famous the favorite technique of uh, metaphysical poets uh, like John Donne. And, you know, where John Donne will take an, a, a concept like a compass or uh, or the flea, right, in his famous flea poem. Um, and he'll just kind of like draw that out and, and uh, uh, extend it, make you think about it deeply on many, many levels. Right. Um, so um, anyway, uh, Shakespeare draws out this conceit of pregnancy in the conversation. And she uh, she hears that there's a, a courier arriving, the queen does, um, and she dreads news. And in fact, we, the viewers, know that the, the, the courier is coming to her to tell her the news that the king, Richard II, uh, has, been, uh, uh, has, been, has been imprisoned, has been um, uh, unkinged. And, um, and she talks about her anticipation, and she uses the preg- uh, this conceit of pregnancy. And she says that, this, that the dread makes her unpregnant. Um, uh, and she, you know, and she uses this. The, she, she extends the metaphor using this language about how, with her unpregnancy, she doth faint and shrink. Um, again, she, like the reversal, right? Normally, you you swell and glow with pregnancy, and she faints and shrinks um, with um, uh, with her um, uh, with her with her unpregnancy, right? Um, and then, of course. She is delivered of the unbaby, right? Uh, of the which is in fact death, right? Uh, not life, um, not birth. Um, anyhow, so uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a fun conceit, and you, I, you can see Lewis doing a similar kind of thing here, right? Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, Mary, it's a really wonderful point. Mary says, "I was selfishly wondering on the heels of the last chapter. So is Bardia's wife and new baby okay? And then I realized that Orwell is writing this, so she doesn't particularly care." You're right, exactly. No, we'll never learn. In fact, I think it was fine. We don't know. Um, uh, that, is a, that is a perfectly just observation, Mary. Um, anyway, okay, so she is. Unpregnant, the queen of Glome is pregnant with Orowal, right? Um, this conflict, this separation between the queen and Orowal is something that we had before. Also, this idea of remember the metaphor of the dam, right? Where she was damming up, uh, primarily damming up the emotional response, right? But the damming up of the emotional response has now here been made into an actual imprisonment of Orowal herself. So that now it's not just that the queen and Orowal are separate, but that the queen has locked away Orowal or laid her asleep as best I could. She can't kill her. She spoke of wishing to kill when she was drunk uh, at the end of the last chapter. She was uh, she was imagining that she might be able to um to kill uh, Orwell. She can't kill Orwell, but she can lay her asleep and she can imprison her. And it's like she's imprisoned inside her own womb. Um, It was like being with child, but reversed, which is rather like uh, the experience she had in the last chapter, right? Where killing her first man was like losing her virginity, except death, not life, right? Um... And so this seems to sort of follow that, right? It's almost as if that, um, that experience 
in which she lost her innocence um, uh, led, you know, her like uh, loss of virginity through the experience of like un sort of life or whatever um, uh, uh, is is then leads to the unpregnancy, right? Mighty Felix, yeah, we're going to get there very soon. You're not jumping ahead too far. We're going to get there in just a moment. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, again, and I would urge you to remember, the same as I did last time when we were looking at that moment where she was wondering if this is how women felt when they lost their virginity, um, that Orwell has not and will not ever lose her virginity. Um, and her kind of antipathy to sexual love, her resentment of uh, Psyche's losing her virginity and becoming a wife, right? Um, and the way in which she was always opposed to love in that way. Um, and of course, <laughs> you'll remember the sort of at times awkward uh, discussion of the fact that she is, a, she is a resolute enemy of Eros, which is fitting and almost a, almost a pun, right? Because of course, Eros is literally um, the husband of Psyche in the original myth, right? It's Cupid and Psyche. Cupid. Eros is the Greek name of Cupid. Um, so it's Eros is literally, the god Eros is literally the husband uh, of Psyche. And she is, uh, she, she, Orwell, is very anti-Eros. Maureen agreed, except for the Bardia issue, right? Um, but of course, the one the one way in which she experiences eros and erotic desire in her life, erotic love in her life, is um, totally unrequited and completely frustrated in that way. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, but yes, anyway, so, and we are, as Devorah was suggesting, we should remember this business about Orwell being locked up in the womb of the queen. And of course, it's also, um, it's also interesting that, um, the, the pregnancy of the, normally like the queen being pregnant, that, that would be a very big deal, right? Um, the queen being pregnant and ideally giving birth to an heir to Gloam, that's, um, that would be a really big deal, right? But this queen, the great queen, experiences only unpregnancy, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, okay. Um, but I don't want to skip the opening paragraph there. On the next day, we burnt the old king. On the day after that, we betrothed Redival to Trunia. The third day, all the strangers rode off and we had the house to ourselves. My real reign began. This is the final conclusion of what she'd already been talking about as this time of bizarre transition, where one thing after another happens in order to clear the road for her new life, for her new world. The birth of the queen, in fact. Right? Um, the... Queen of Gloam is like something that the as it, it is as if the gods themselves have conspired to create the Queen of Gloam. Is this in fact, therefore, in a sense, the punishment of the gods? Um, Orowal 
after her experience, was afraid, you know, felt conviction that she was going to be punished in some kind of dreadful way. Remember, she was expecting something horrible to uh, happen to her. How about, um, how about possibly, um, you know, being locked away for the rest of your life, right? Uh, until you are growing smaller and less alive throughout the entire rest of your life. That might maybe be a punishment. Um, perhaps, I mean, if you're thinking about it this way, that might mean if, if she were told this, um, you know, that you're going to be locked away uh, in a cell and you will uh, grow slowly smaller and less alive for the whole rest of your life, um, that indeed... Um, uh, that indeed happens, right? But it's the queen herself who does this. Any punishment that Orowal receive, any receives any, you know, the 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 imprisonment, the starvation, um, the choking off of Orowal, the damming up of Orowal, the immurement of Orowal, um, is done by Orowal herself, right? It's not the gods pour blessing upon blessing on her, as we've seen, just as they did after the sacrifice of of Psyche. Um, and this is what she does with it. Um, okay. She talks about the two strengths of her reign. Um, and... Oh, wait, hang on a second. Before I move on to that, Jackrabbit says, um, uh, that, you know, he knows that this quote is Tolkien, but I can't help thinking about a divine punishment is also a divine gift, if accepted, since its object is ultimate blessing, and the supreme inventiveness of the creator will make punishment, that is, changes of design, produce a good not otherwise to be attained. Yes, and you'll notice, Jackrabbit, how in this scenario, what... Lewis is describing is like that, but it's almost the opposite of that, right? Tolkien, and of course, Tolkien is there speaking about death, right? Talking about a divine punishment being also a divine gift. Lewis is also showing how a divine gift can also be made into a divine punishment, right? And once again, it is, um, uh, once again, it is Orwell's choice, that makes it so, just as we saw how operative, how important her own choices, her own reactions were um, in the period from the sacrifice of Psyche through her final conversation uh, with Psyche. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Anyway, yeah, so I'm... I'm Glad you brought that up. I think that that's that is an interesting sort of connection. But let's 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 keep moving ahead. Um, she talks about her two greatest strengths as queen, in her opinion, her two greatest strengths as queen, and one of them, of course, is her counselors, Bardia and the Fox. No one could uh, ask for any wiser um, or more complimentary. Uh, that is not to each other, but of each other. Right? Compliment with an e, not compliment with an i. They don't compliment each other. They don't always get along at all. In fact, they generally disagree. But between the two of them, they can assist her in any 
uh, crisis and advise her aptly in any situation. And what's more, um, she knows that they are never thinking of themselves. They're never vying for position. They're always remaining faithful to her. They're always thinking of her and her good first. They are supremely loyal. Um, uh, yeah. Um, this is important to remember. Just keep that in mind. Um, <clears throat> but her second is her facelessness. My second strength lay in my veil. I could never have believed, till I had proof of it, what it would do for me. From the very first, it began that night in the garden with Trunia. As soon as my face was invisible, people began to discover all manner of beauties in my voice. At first it was deep as a man's, but nothing in the world less, less mannish. Later, until it grew cracked with age, uh, uh, it was the voice of a spirit, a siren, Orpheus, what you will. And as years passed, there were fewer in the city and none beyond it who remembered my face. The wildest stories got about as to what that veil hid. No one believed it was anything so common as the face of an ugly woman. Some said, nearly all the younger women said, that it was frightful beyond endurance. A pig's, bear's, cat's, or elephant's face. The best story was that I had no face at all. If you stripped off my veil, you'd find emptiness. But another sort, there were more of the men among these, said that I wore a veil because I was of a beauty so dazzling that if I let it be seen, all men in the world would run mad, or else that Ungit was jealous of my beauty and had promised to blast me if I went bareface. The upshot of all this nonsense was that I became something very mysterious and awful. I have seen ambassadors who were brave men in battle turn white like scared children in my pillar room when I turned and looked at them and they couldn't see whether I was looking or not, and was silent. I have made the most seasoned liars turn red and blurt out the truth with the same weapon. Okay. Um, so I I think uh, the Cal uh, Elros, the, the relation to um, uh, Orpheus is just about the, uh, the, the, the power, his singing, the power of his voice, like the sirens. Right, the uh, the power of their voice on other people, right? Um, okay, okay. So, most important thing here, as always, especially now, you know, as we're like on the downhill slide in the latter parts of this book, it's going to be really, really important to be remembering all those things we were looking at before, right? To be making connections with all of these. The, these earlier observations. Um, so the thing to always do in a situation like this is try not to just free associate. That is, try not to just read this and see what it makes you think of, right? Uh, you know, what, it, what, what you kind of connect with it. Instead, focus on what other things in the story, what other moments in the story, what other passages in the story it recalls, it's bringing in, right? Keep it within within the story and we'll see a little bit more clearly um, where we're kind of we're kind of going here. What do we see? What has happened with the queen? What is the effect? Um, uh, what is the effect of her veiling herself? She says 
the upshot of all this nonsense. She dismisses all of it, of course. She knows the real truth. But no one believed that it was anything so common as the face of an ugly woman. Instead, all of these ideas grow. What do these other ideas remind us of? Well, again, her conclusion is that she, um, uh, the upshot again of all this nonsense was that I became something very mysterious and awful. She becomes something to everyone, one way or another. All of the stories that she cites are stories of her being something beyond the mortal, right? Something almost divine. Possibly beauty so dazzling beyond mortal endurance, right? Sometimes frightful beyond endurance. That make you think of anything? Does that remind you of anything from earlier in the story? This is exactly the God, the experience of the divine that Psyche was sacrificed to. Is it the glorious God of the mountain, the son of Ungut, whose bride she is going to be? Is it the brute, the shadow brute, who would devour her? Right? The two are... What, does it? Do, do we have to choose? Remember the priest of Ungit, right? Saying way back in like chapter five, um, holy places are dark places. Um, why shouldn't the god be both the brute and the son of Ungit? Why shouldn't both things be true? Right? Um, she is becoming. They view her as like a god. In the experience of the people, her facelessness gives a kind of reality, a new kind of reality to the old story behind her line that she has the blood of the gods, that she's fundamentally different from other people. Remember, even Bardia believes that on some level, right? Like when he's talking to her before her battle, like you probably won't experience this because you've got the divine blood in you, but us mortals all feel really afraid before battle. Right. Um, uh, anyway, but there's a new kind of substance, a new kind of reality is given to that old myth, that old story. And yes, Devora, there are all kinds of layers of irony in this, right? Um, let us count them, right? Let us give some of the ways in which this... Um, at least in the imagination of the people, this sort of quasi-apotheosis of, of the queen is ironic, right? It's ironic on the one hand because she is, she is seen to be more than mortal, to have left the mortal realm and instead to be a representative of it. She, she is like the one place where there is a point of contact with the divine world. And you're right, Jack Rabbit. I think it was you who a couple minutes ago was remembering the veil in the temple, right? Or the veil in the tabernacle, the veil that concealed the Holy of Holies, the sacred place, the most holy place. And what made that the most holy place is that that's where God came, right? That's where the presence of God came um, in the, in the Jewish tabernacle or the Jewish temple. And the veil was there partly for protection, right? If you enter in behind the veil, 
And if you do so unworthily, right, only one person once a year can do that. Uh, and uh, if you were to do so unworthily, to transgress onto that holy ground, you would be destroyed. It's happened before. Um, and so, yes, there's that, that, that kind of element, um, that, that concept gets um, uh, overlaid, right, on her facelessness. Um, uh, exactly, Arthur, only the high priest and only on Yom Kippur. That's exactly it, right. Um, but um, anyway, so, uh, so, and again, what, because of the holiness, right? Because of the holiness. So, Orwal, her face has become holy to the people. And just remember the particular um, spin that that word has received in Orwal's own vocabulary, right? Her, she has become uh, very holy, meaning reeking like death, sacrifice, and old blood. Like the old stone which just devours blood and semen and everything else, right? Just the, 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 the with the temple prostitutes. That's a thing. She'll talk about that more later. Um, but um, the, 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 the consuming, hungry, uh, faceless unget, right? Um, yeah, she's become kind of like that. I know it's gross, but we have to be grown-ups about this. Um, again, Lewis is going to make that ex very... Uh, Orwell is going to make that connection very explicitly. Um, the blood of the sacrifices and the temple prostitutes. Um, not pretending it's not gross. <laughs> Just saying. Just saying. It's, it's, uh, it's part of the thing. Um, and, and the point is... All for what? Nothing. Right? All for rot and stagnation. Um, ironically, right, because she's a goddess of fertility, Ungit is, right? Um, yeah. So, whether or not, apparently, uh, she, that is Orwell, she too shall be Psyche. In the meantime, she too seems to be becoming Ungit as well. And then there's that reference of um, then there's that reference about the, the story, the mythic story that her beauty is so dazzling um, that the men would not be able to endure it or else that Ungit was jealous of my beauty and had promised to blast me if I went bareface. Um, just like Psyche, right? The jealousy of Ungit for Psyche, which Orwell herself feared from the first moment she learned that some of the people in the city were worshipping Psyche, right? Um... So, lots of irony. And, Devorah, back to what you said at the very, very beginning um, of, the, of this part of the discussion. She also has been, it has been one of her fierce accusations of the gods, 
that they conceal themselves, that they don't speak openly, that they don't deal openly with people, but always hide themselves away and always speak in riddles, right? Um, and here we have her talking about how much strength lay um, in the mysteriousness and awfulness of her facelessness. Um, yeah, so lots and lots of irony here in what we see uh, in her description of her um, of her facelessness. Um, okay, Devorah, here you go. See, we didn't have to wait too long uh, to get to the passage you were referring to when we were talking about the Queen's unpregnancy. The first thing I did was to shift my own quarters over to the north side of the palace in order to be out in order to be out of that sound the chains made in the well. For though by daylight I knew well enough what made it, at night nothing I could do would cure me of taking it for the weeping of a girl. But the change of my quarters, and later changes, for I tried every side of the house, did no good. I discovered that there was no part of the palace from which the swinging of those chains could not be heard. At night, I mean, when the silence grows deep. It is a thing no one would have found out who was not always afraid of hearing one sound. And at the same time, that was Orowal, Orowal refusing to die, terribly afraid of not hearing it, if for once, possibly, at last, after ten thousand mockeries, it should be real, if Psyche had come back. But I knew this was foolishness. If Psyche were alive and able to come back and wanted to come back, she would have done it long ago. She must be dead by now, or caught by someone and sold into slavery. When that thought came, my only resource was to rise, however late and cold it was, and go to my pillar room and find some work. I have read and written there till I could hardly see out of my eyes, my head on fire, my feet aching with cold. Sorry, Devorah, it's not quite to the passage that you're... The, I forgot, there are three passages about this. This is the middle one. The first one was the unpregnancy. This is the second one. Her... Um, and it's, it's pretty clear this isn't actually about the chains at the well, right? It's not... This is not a, a physical phenomenon uh, that she's experiencing. Um, she is continuously and inescapably haunted by the sound of Psyche's wails and tears that she heard as Psyche was banished from the Valley of the God up on the mountain. And she's always hearing it, still hearing it, um, always hating it and always hoping for it, still, lest after 10,000 mockeries it should be real and Psyche had come back. Um... Notice one of the things that uh, really strikes me about this paragraph, what this is a really great example of, is Orwell, who the I is, who the first person of this is, right? We can now understand it more clearly. Um, we've been talking about the Orowal of the story and the geriatric Orowal, the narrator, right? And I think that now, finally, in these last two chapters, we understand clearly that the narrator of the book all along 
that other voice, the voice of the older Orwal, is not the voice of the old, of old Orwal at all. It's the voice of the queen. The voice of the queen who has been telling Orwal's story, um, but who is also distant from it. And we see that very clearly here. The I in this passage is the queen, not Orwal. She speaks of Orwal in the third person. That was Orwal. Orwal refusing to die. Right. And I'm not necessarily saying that this means that at all times through the whole book, whenever she has said I, it was the queen speaking and not Orwal. Though, again, remember, we noticed several times that that seemed to be the case. Right, that it was the later queen who would jump in and say something about, like, you know, the changes that she made to the palace, you know, years later when she was queen and that sort of thing. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, she's um, here. It's very clear now that it's the queen speaking, um, speaking about, and even in a sense, speaking over Orwell and trying to resist. So this is, she's given, she's, she's said it once in a metaphor about trying to lay Orawal to sleep, imprisoning Orawal as if in her womb, right? Carrying her like a baby that was shriveling and dying. Um, uh, this is like a, a description of the same thing, but without the metaphor, right? Um, and which ties it much more explicitly back to Psyche's banishment and to um, this is one of the places where we can begin to see what sounds like a divine judgment, a divine punishment on Orwell. It seems like if the gods are doing something giving her some kind of long term punishment it sounded like the gods were just giving her lots of awesome things right? Um, almost as soon as she got back home in fact uh, from doing her terrible thing to Psyche. Um, but if there is a lasting punishment, it, w it would seem to be this. This constant hearing of the weeping of Psyche in the, the swinging of the chains on the well. Um, notice, by the way, the significance even of that as a metaphor. Um, the idea, uh, the, the water thing, right? The well is the place where you can go to get water to bring life. Um, so she and the other water metaphor, the dam, right? She's trying to dam up um, Orwal and keep Orwal's emotions from pouring out again, and that's ultimately killing and strangling Orwal, right? Not to let the 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 water come out, right? Um, but. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, even her description at the end is just such a gorgeous kind of combination, right? When she hears the thing, which is almost every night, and when she gets to thinking about it, which she almost inevitably does, then her only resource was to rise, however late and cold it was, and go to my pillar room and find some work. Why is this the only thing that helps? She's got to go be the queen. Um, it's the only way to get Orowal to go back to sleep. It's the only way to dam up Orowal again. 
is to uh, is to go and queen it for a while. And her description of her physical suffering. I have read and written there till I could hardly see out of my eyes, my head on fire, my feet aching with cold. That sounds like a punishment from the gods, right? I mean, Orowal would not have been a bit surprised if the, you know, like the god had visited her when she returned to Gloam from the mountain and said, I shall punish you such that every night I shall take away your sleep and I shall give you instead, you know, searing headaches and your feet like ice and you shall endure this every night for the rest of your life. She would have been like, it's a fair cop, right? That's just what I expected. Um, it sounds like a divine punishment in a myth. Um, but um, it's... Uh, but it's not just that. It is that, in a sense. But it's also not just that. Why is her... Where does the headache and the, the freezing feet come from? Again, her own choice. Her response to the stimulus. The gods do uh, seem to provide the stimulus, in fact. Um, uh, but... Um, uh, but she decides how she's going to respond to it. As Liz says, the gods don't have to punish her. She's so good at punishing herself. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we see that again and again. Um, yeah, yeah. Mary, you're right. They took away her sleep that first night with the chains, and she found Trunia. Yes, it's, it's another irony, right? Um, and the first thing that we see, Mary, right? Uh, yes, this sound, the hearing of this sound um, does seem to be something as far as she can see that comes from the gods right? And yet the very first element, the very first night of it right? It was the, inst it was the very instrument of her greatest stroke of good fortune the finding and capturing of Trunia right? Which turned the entire political history of the kingdom of Glom, right? Um yeah, so much irony wrapped in this whole thing. Um, okay. The duty of queenship that irked me most uh, was going off into the house of Ungit and sacrificing. It would have been worse, but that Ungit herself, or my pride made me think so, was now weakened. Arnhem had opened new windows in the walls, and her house was not so dark. He also kept it differently, scouring away the blood after each slaughter and sprinkling fresh water. It smelled cleaner and less holy. And Arnhem was learning from the fox to talk like a philosopher about the gods. The great change came when he proposed to set up an image of her, a woman-shaped image in the Greek fashion, in front of the old shapeless stone. I think he would have got he would like to have got rid of the stone altogether, but it is in a manner Ungit herself, and the people would have gone mad if she were removed. It was a prodigious charge to get such an image as he wanted, for no one in Gloom could make it. It had to be brought, not indeed from the Greek lands themselves, but from lands where men had learned of the Greeks. I was rich now and helped him with silver. I was not quite certain why I did this. I think I felt that an image of this sort would be somehow a defeat for the old, hungry, faceless Ungit whose terror had been over me in childhood. 
the new image, when at last it came, seemed to us barbarians wonderfully, wonderfully beautiful and lifelike, even when we brought her white and naked into her, into her house. That remind you of anything? Being brought in white and naked? Who else was brought in white and naked to somewhere? You remember? It's almost a quote. Exactly, Feanaro, Psyche's mother. Exactly right. When she was bundled into bed with the king to conceive Psyche. Yes. Yes. Uh, anyway, even when we brought her white and naked into her house, and when we had painted her and put her robes on, she was a marvel to all the lands about, and pilgrims came to see her. The fox, who had seen greater and more beautiful works at home, laughed at her. Um, okay. Um, so, notice... Notice what happened? Yeah. Oh, Ambrosius, that's very good. Uh, Ambrosius pointing out that it's a connection between Psyche's mother and Psyche's mother-in-law. Yeah, that's kind of awesome, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, okay, so... She says, the queen says, that she doesn't know why she did this. She doesn't know why. She paid a lot of money to help Arnhem. Get, Arnhem couldn't have afforded it himself. Arnhem wanted to do this. This came from Arnhem, right? The new priest of, of Ungud, he wanted, who's been taught by the fox his whole life. Um, he wanted to get a new Greek-style image, statue of Ungud financed by the queen. And she says, I don't know why she did. Right? But I think we can see exactly why she did it. We can see very clearly the links between this passage and the one about her veil, about her facelessness before, the power and mystery of her facelessness. She even uses the word faceless, uh, defeating the old, hungry, faceless ungit. Ouch. It's a little um, unself-aware, that description. Um, but yes, um, by giving Ungit a face, she makes her less, uh, what was the word? Mysterious and awful? That was it. Yeah. Um, mysterious and awful. Um, she's diminishing her. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, the change in the tone of the religion of Ungit, Sarah, just as you say, it's less dark. It's more, it's more philosophical. It's becoming uh, less thick, more clear. More logical, more philosophical, less holy. Um, yes. Yes. Um, we don't need to talk about this that much. Just note, once again, the connections, even the reversal here. Ungit is now being given a face, while Orowal is becoming dark and holy and sacred and almost divine, at least in the minds of the people, through her facelessness. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, Cal Elras, I agree. There is a lot of connection between holy, between holiness and mysteriousness um, in this context. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and that's um, um, just like also uh, the other term that I would introduce there, Cal Elros, is dark, right? Um, dark, uh, in a sense, physically dark, but mysterious, right? Like beyond mortal eyes to perceive, right? Holy places are dark places, says the old priest of Ungit, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. We'll be building on this. Just, we're just noting, noting this. And now, Devorah, now we get to the strengthening of the dam. I gave up trying to find a room where I should not hear that noise, which was sometimes chained swinging the wind and sometimes lost in beggared psyche weeping at my door. Instead, I built stone walls round the well and put a thatched roof over it and added a door. The walls were very thick. My mason told me they were madly thick. You're wasting enough good stone, queen, he said, to have made ten new pigsties. For a while after that, an ugly fancy used to come to me in my dreams, or between sleeping and waking, that I had walled up, gagged with stone, not a well, but Psyche, or, or a wall, herself. But that also passed. I heard Psyche weeping no more. The year after that, I defeated Esur. Esur, of course, this is her greatest victory. Right, her, uh, her defeat of Asur, her greatest political accomplishment. There had been uh, three kingdoms, right? There was Fars, uh, Asur, and Glom. And Asur and Fars were always at war, and though they are two much larger kingdoms, and Glom is the tiny third kingdom, um, the little third wheel in that transaction, right? We learned a little bit about this earlier on. Um, now, again, we get these hints of her political accomplishments, right? Through the alliance with Trunia and cemented by the marriage with Redival, she has made Fars the fast ally of Glom. Now Fars and Glom are joined together, right? Um, further cemented, by the way, by her naming the second son of Trunia and Redival to be her heir in Glom. Um, and then together, they, and under her leadership, they defeat Esur. And so now Esur has become um, not one with them, like Fars, but has become a sort of a, a, a subject kingdom of them. Um, anyway, um, are we supposed to think of Assyria? It's not, it can't be Assyria. I mean, Assyria was not just like a kingdom bordering a little land like Glom. Assyria was a like a, you know, world empire at one point. Um, so um, I can't think that it's Assyria, but I also would imagine that Lewis guessed it would make you think of that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, um, anyway. Uh, okay. Um, yes, good. Leafa Starlight, I agree. She does this thing here and in another place in this section where she drops some world events on the tail end of a paragraph. Yes. Yes. Um, Notice the effect of it here. Um, the year after that, I defeated Asur. Queen. All queen. Right? Orwal has finally been locked up. The dam is complete. She doesn't hear Psyche anymore. Um, she's, she's 
is it, has she imprisoned Psyche? Has she imprisoned Orwell? She was trying to imprison Orwell, right? This dam of the water of her emotions, of her humanity, has been completed now, right? And she juxtaposes that immediately with the year after that I defeated a sword. I accomplished my greatest uh, political accomplishment as queen, right? Her greatest triumph as queen um, happened immediately after she had completed the final strengthening of the dam, locked Orwell away for good and all. She doesn't actually assert that there's a causal relationship between these things. But it seems kind of there in her mind, right? Having finally, permanently rid herself of Orwell um, and Psyche, she now um, is all queen and goes on uh, in uninhibited, unrestricted, queenly fashion uh, to accomplish her great accomplishment. Um, yeah, well, exactly, Jackie. She thinks she's rid herself of Orwell. Um, she thinks that she's uh, done enough here. Um, <laughs> you can also, by the way, th one of the things that I really like about this section is there are several places where you get the feeling. Remember how, um, remember how in her account of her childhood, every, everyone lived in fear of her father's rages, right? Her father would just do these, like, go off on these random rages, and you just would never know. You'd never know what would trigger it. Right? You could never see it coming. Right? He'd just go off. And, like, it, and that was horrible. And it was terrible to experience, and everybody lived in fear of it. Right? Well, we've seen enough about her similarity to her dad to wonder if she ever does anything like that. But we certainly get enough evidence that although clearly she's a, obviously a better ruler than her father, a more effective ruler than her father, she was a, you know, she'd accomplished more uh, in the first two days of her reign than her father accomplished in his whole lifetime, right? Um, and yet, we also very clearly see evidence of moments where at the very least the queen's behavior seems unpredictable, arbitrary and very strange, even possibly insane. Like, think of the casual, like, she kept moving her apartments from one, so, like, she has been ordering random, purposeless, um, and unexplained, complete remodelings of the palace every few years, right? Um, for reasons nobody understands. She, um, even, like, something pretty small, like the building of this well, right? Like, okay, we have a well. I want to build a house around the well and make the walls of the house, like, ten feet thick, right? And the, the people are like, okay, queen, we'll, we'll do that, right? We don't know how she reacted uh, to the mason when the mason tried to talk sense to her and say, really, the specs for your well hut here are whacked, Right? Like, it doesn't make a bit of sense at all. Right? Um, I, you know, we don't know. We don't know. But, um, um, I, but anyway, again, we, 
Is she a better ruler than her father? Yes. Is she a better person than her father? Yes. Does she have, I mean, she, and she has Bardia and the Fox who are going to keep her from just, from being tyrannical like her father was or irrational like her father was. But, um, but we get glimpses, right? That um, she may have been a little harder to live with than she's kind of letting on, right? Um, yeah, but um, anyway, um, I know, Mary, I know you're right. I said she was a better person than her father. I, I'm not forgetting what she did with Psyche, but I still stand by it. Um, I do think that in general she is, uh, I, I do think she is a better person than her. Even the, the kinds of things that she does um, are not only wiser and more shrewd, but even kinder. Um, and, um, but, but yes, Mary, one of the things that you are seeing, I think, well, again, obviously you're remembering how horrible she was to Psyche, which is totally fair. Um, on the one hand, she's not made that better. She's made that worse by becoming what she's become. Again, we don't see it because we don't get narrative of that whole season of her life. Right. But the queen, uh, again, if we go back and we look at these other connections that we've been invited to make, right? Um, the, the old, hungry, faceless Ungit, right? And the mysterious and awful, faceless queen. Um, we have already seen that for Orowal, it is true, as the priest of Ungit said, that the loving and the devouring are one. She has lived that. She has been the example of that. When the priest was saying, sacred things don't have to make sense, they don't have to be logical, right? Holy places are dark places. Why shouldn't the, why shouldn't it be a marriage? And why shouldn't the brute be devouring her? Why shouldn't those be the same thing? Some say the loving and the devouring are one. And again, Mary, as you're well remembering, she proved that in her love for Psyche. Right? And again, old is she old? Yes. Is she faceless? Yes. Is she hungry? That is absent from her description of her facelessness here. However, we, Mary, as you are right to do, remember it from before. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, now it's time for the sacred story. I'm, uh, I'm not going to take a long time, I hope, discussing each slide. Um, I've got a whole bunch of slides here for the, um, for the whole story, so we'll see. Um, some of it I'm just going to keep reading, I think, but, um, but let's see how we do. She's on her journey, remember, on her progress. 
with uh, Bardia's son and, um, you know, and, and Pooby's daughter and a bunch of other fun young people, right? And they've all been having a wonderful time um, until she hears the ringing of a bell for a small temple in the wood. Uh, so our progress, uh, that's an old English term, um, the pro is when the king moves around the countryside. Um, so the king or the queen goes on progress, uh, meaning the king and the entire court of the king or queen travels around the countryside. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's a journey, but it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a royal journey. Um, it is, well, it's not exactly like Pilgrim's Progress, um, uh, because there's nothing royal. I think, Jackie and Arthur, that I suspect that there is, in fact, Arthur, you'll love this. I think that actually, um, I think that, uh, what's his face? Bunyan, um, is actually making a pun on the word progress in the title. Um, because Pilgrim is not a king and a royal court progressing around the countryside at all, right? Um, he's a solitary and impoverished wanderer. But of course he does, in the end, have a royal destiny in the celestial city. Um, and so as he is making his progress, um, it, in the end, turns out to have been a royal progress, actually. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Orwell's regress. Uh, no, yeah, thank you, Argent Paintbrush. Yeah, uh, C.S. Lewis's first published uh, book of prose um, was a book called The Pilgrim's Regress, which is a, a protracted allegory where he is, uh, he was deliberately um, paralleling Bunyan. He was like doing a, an early 20th century version of Pilgrim's Progress. It was like, a, you know, updated for the 20th century, early 20th century, of course, when it was published. Um, and um, uh, yeah, yeah, anyway. So yeah, that was the joke about Orwell's regress instead of her progress. Um, okay, all right. But in a few moments, I came out into a mossy place free of trees, and there it was, no bigger than a peasant's hut, but built of pure white stone with fluted pillars in the Greek style. Behind it, I could see a small thatched house where, no doubt, the priest lived. The place itself was quiet enough, but inside the temple there was a far deeper silence, and it was very cool. It was clean and empty, and there were none of the common temple smells about it so that I thought it must belong to one of those small, peaceful gods who are content with flowers and fruit for sacrifice. Then I saw it must be a goddess, for there was on the altar the image of a woman about two feet high carved in wood, not badly done, and all the fairer to my mind, because there was no painting or gilding, but only the natural pale color of the wood. The thing that marred it was a band or scarf of some black stuff tied round the head of the image so as to hide its face. Much like my own veil, she says, almost unnecessarily, but that mine was white. I thought how much better all this was than the house of Ungit, and how unlike. All right, okay. Um, just a few things that I would point out as being important. 
she likes the carving of the goddess in particular because there was no painting or gilding but only the natural pale color of the wood and we should be remembering what? Exactly, Maureen. No gilding like Psyche had. When Psyche is taken away to be the sacrifice, her own natural beauty was covered over with thick layers of paint and a wooden mask, right? Which covered up her face. Um, so, yes, the statue is just showing the natural beauty of the wood, right? Um, but it does have a veil over its face. It's a faceless statue, which is much like my own veil. Um, but that mine was white. Don't forget that. Orowal's veil is white. That will be important soon. Keep going. I slipped a couple of coins into his hand and asked what goddess she was. Istra, he said. The name is not so uncommon in Glom and the neighboring lands that I had much cause to be startled, but I said I had never heard of a goddess called that. Oh, that is because she's a very young goddess. She has only just begun to be a goddess, for you must know that, like many other gods, she began by being a mortal. And how is she godded? She is so lately godded that she is still rather a poor goddess. Stranger, she, uh, poor goddess, stranger. Yet for one little silver piece, I will tell you the sacred story. Thank you, kind stranger, thank you. Istra will be your friend for this. Now I will tell you the sacred story. Once upon a time in a certain land, there lived a king and a queen who had three daughters, and the youngest was the most beautiful princess in the whole world. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love that God it is a word, uh, too. Uh, Devorah is my favorite, my favorite thing here. Um, of course, one of the things that, again, we, 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 we've already been looking at it, right? Um, the ironies, the layers of ironies, which are often so blistering, the ironies in this part of the book. Um, they begin to, um, they begin to roll in, right? Um, Istra will be your friend for this? Oh, ouch. Man. Okay. Um, she has only just begun to be a goddess. So this is about a goddess. So again, one thing to emphasize is that part of the story of the goddess Istra is her conversion from the human to the divine. Exactly all the stuff that we saw going on with Psyche. Right, that we heard from her. Um, and so we went on, as such priests do, all in a sing-song voice, and using words which he clearly knew by heart. And to me it was, as if, it was as if the old man's voice, and the temple, and I myself, and my journey, were all things in such a story. For he was telling the very history of our Istra, of Psyche herself, how Talapal, that's the Assyrian Ungit, was jealous of her beauty, and made her to be offered to a brute on a mountain, and how Talapal's son Yalim, the most beautiful of the gods, loved her and took her away to his secret palace. He even knew that Yalim had there visited her only in darkness, and had forbidden her to see his face. But he had a childish reason for that. 
you see, stranger, he had to be very secret because of his mother, Talapal. She would have been very angry with him if she had known he, he, he had married the woman she most hated in the world. Now, here is the genius thing that C.S. Lewis does here in this moment. Um, some of you will see it right away. The story, the sacred story that the priest tells is the normal, traditional myth of Cupid and Psyche. Almost exactly as you read it in The Golden Ass, right? Um, this is this is the original myth that Lewis has taken and adapted and altered into his story of Orwell. Right? That's the story that the priest tells. And Orwell responds to it. All of the ways in which it's different from her story offend her. Um, but that is, in fact, the rationale in several versions of the myth that he concealed um, he concealed because uh, he didn't want his mother, Venus, to find out. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's so clever, Jack Rabbit. This is just, it's just amazing. Amazing what, what he pulls off here. The, the fact that within his adaptation of the myth, we get the myth itself and a commentary on the myth and, what, and the character within his myth reacting to the myth and drawing attention to all of the ways in which he's changed the story. So, so amazing. So incredible what he's done here. It is like fourth level meta. It really is, Eric. I agree. Um, uh, okay. I thought to myself, it's well for me I didn't hear this story 15 years ago. Yes, or even 10. It would have reawakened all my sleeping miseries. Now it moves me hardly at all. Then suddenly struck afresh with the queerness of the thing I asked him. Where did you learn all this? He stared at me as if he didn't well understand such a question. It's the sacred story, he said. I saw that he was rather silly than cunning, and that it would be useless to question him. As soon as I was silent, he went on. But now all the dreamlike feeling in me suddenly vanished. I was wide awake, and I felt the blood rush into my face. He was telling it wrong, hideously and stupidly wrong. First of all, he made it that both Psyche's sisters had visited her in the secret palace of the god, to think of Redival going there. And so, he said, when her two sisters had seen the beautiful palace had been and had been feasted and given gifts, they, they saw the palace? Stranger, you are hindering the sacred story. Of course they saw the palace. They weren't blind. And then... Okay. Oh, man. So much... Just one thing quickly. Notice the relationship between myth and history. My favorite thing is her question. Where did you learn all this? Where did you learn all this? Right? She knows this is history. To him, this is myth. Right? He can't understand what she even means. It's the sacred story. But in Orwell's ears... This is like some kind of expose, right? I mean, he knows nobody could know that. I mean, there's enough truth, there's enough real history in what he's saying 
that like there has to be a source of this story. No other human being in the world knew about the lamp and the darkness. Only Orowal herself, and she's certainly not told anyone. Not even the fox. Right? Barty had never even asked. Um, she's wondering where he's got his information. And he's like, it's the sacred story. Um, someone has been blabbing. Yes, Maureen, the business about her denying to herself of um, seeing the palace, right? She asks about, they saw the palace? I love that his simple, they weren't blind. Of course they saw the palace. Oh, man. Also, remember that business about the gods rewriting history, right? Can the gods rewrite history backwards? They have. The myth does that. The myth has rewritten the story and made it as if she saw, not only as if Redival came with her, but as if she saw the palace all along. That's almost exactly what Orowal was thinking up on the mountaintop. It was as if the gods themselves had first laughed and then spat in my face. So this was the shape of the story had taken. You may say the shape the gods had given it, for it must be they who had put it into the old fool's mind or into the mind of some other dreamer from whom he'd learned it. How could any mortal have known of that palace at all? That much of the truth they had dropped into someone's mind, in a dream, or an oracle, or however they do such things. That much, and wiped clean out the very meaning, the pith, the central knot of the whole tale. Do I not do well to write a book against them, telling what they have kept hidden? Never, sitting on my judgment seat, had I caught a false witness in a more cunning half-truth. For if the story, if the true story had been like their story, no riddle would have been set me. There would have been no guessing and no guessing wrong. More than that, it's a story belonging to a different world, a world in which the gods show themselves clearly and don't torment men with glimpses, nor unveil to one what they hide from another, nor ask you to believe what contradicts your eyes and ears and nose and tongue and fingers. In such a world, is there such? It's not ours for certain. I would have walked aright. The gods themselves would have been able to find no fault in me. And now to tell my story as if I had had the very sight they had denied me? It is, it is not as if you told a crippled story and never said he was lame. Sorry, is it not as if you told a crippled story and never said he was lame? Or told how a man betrayed a secret but never said it was after twenty hours of torture? And I saw all in a moment how the false story would grow and spread and be told all over the earth. And I wondered how many of the other sacred stories are just such twisted falsities as this. Oh, man. And here we can see the heart of her book. The heart of her purpose. But of course the question that we are inescapably left with is who exactly has tried to rewrite history backwards. Right? 
Um, did the gods do that? Or did she do that? On the one hand, yes, it's a major difference between Orwell's story and the sacred story. No, she was not just received openly into the hall, into the hall of the god. Um, that's not how it happened. She's right. I mean, she's, she's, she's not completely wrong about that, right? Um, and yet, and now to tell my story as if I had had the very sight they had denied me. Kind of true, but also ignoring the fact that that the sight was, in fact, given her. Not the whole time, right? Only in that one moment, admittedly. Um, notice how all these boundaries are being crossed. Orowal, veiled, queen, the queen, veiled, is becoming like a god, even like an old, hungry, faceless god. The god is becoming like a woman, like Psyche. Open and with a face. Um, the boundaries are being transgressed, right? Who's guilty of what? Is it she or the gods that have transgressed? Is she being like the gods or the gods being like her? Or who's guilty of what um, we have here in a sense the separation of two worlds the divine world and the human world which she says were never as it was never as simple as that and she was right it's, it was it's humans like the human sisters could not just be invited up to the mountain and had in for tea right the god wouldn't allow that um, that's true the divine world and the human world where that boundary was not so easily crossed before. But the vision was given. Um, and the gap that she sees, the cunning half-truth, as she calls it, of the divine story. And notice there's also a sense in which she's reading a divine story in exactly the right way. She's not thinking about the events. She's thinking about what she calls the very meaning, the pith, the central knot of the whole tale. And that is a good way to read a sacred story, to read a myth, right? Um, the question is, what is that, right? Um, keep going. And so, the priest was saying, when these two wicked sisters had made their plan to ruin Istra, they brought her the lamp and... But why did she... They want to separate her from the god if they had seen the palace. They wanted to destroy her because they had seen her palace. No, it should be, they wanted to destroy her because they had seen her palace. But why? Oh, because they were jealous. Her husband and her house were so much finer than theirs. Again, that's how the original myth goes, by the way. Uh, um, <coughs> yeah, okay. So, you see how she doesn't need to say it again, right? Um, who's rewriting history? 
backwards. That's, that's so wrong. That is so wrong. Did she set out to destroy Istra just because she was jealous that she had a nice, a better husband and a finer house than she? Well, no, it's not exactly right, but it is certainly not exactly wrong either. Um, still missing the very meaning, the central pith of the story? Not so sure, right? Not so sure. Um, that moment, I resolved to write this book. For years now, my old quarrel with the gods had slept. I had come into Bardia's way of thinking. I no longer meddled with them. Often, though I had seen a god myself, I was near to believing that there are no such things. The memory of his voice and face was kept in one of those rooms of my soul that I didn't lightly unlock. Now, instantly, I knew I was facing them, with no strength, and they, I with no strength, and they with all. I visible to them, they invisible to me. I easily wounded, already so wounded that all my life had been but a hiding and staunching of the wound. They invulnerable. I won, they many. In all these years, they had only let me run away from them as far as the cat lets the mouse run. Now snatch, and the claw on me again. Well, I could speak. I could set down the truth. What had never perhaps been done in the world before should be done now. The case against them should be written. Jealousy? I jealous of Psyche? I sickened not only at the vileness of the lie, but at its flatness. It seemed as if the gods had minds just like the lowest of the people. What came easiest to them, what seemed the likeliest and simplest reason to put in a story, was the dull, narrow passion of the beggar streets, the temple brothels, the slave, the child, the dog. Could they not lie, if lie they must, better than that? And by the way, again, um, this is... The original myth, Apuleius's myth, feels exactly like this after you read this book. Right. A childish reason. Right. It's so simplistic uh, compared to the marvelous depth of psychological insight and irony that Lewis has laid upon it, right? Um, and, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and the great irony is that Orwell perceives the gap. She perceives how simplistic the sacred story is, and she rejects it for its simplicity. Even though, again, Lewis has so contrived not just to alter the story, not just to deviate from it, right? But to overlay it with more and more stuff so that it's not changed. Jealousy kind of still is the root of what was going on there with Orwell and Psyche. Um, uh, 
in so many ways. Um, he still makes it that the original myth, though it does sound very simplistic, in comparison, still kind of is getting at the central pith of Orwell's own story. So brilliant. Just, just incredible. Um, uh, now, yes, Mary, Orwell definitely really believed that Psyche had married a god when she saw him. I mean, she knew the god and who he was. Um, she was not in any doubt about the reality of what happened after she encountered the god face to face. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, um, Notice also her description of her confrontation with the gods. And remember that image of what she cried out to Psyche about how the two of them were on different places, like being... She felt like they were moving further and further apart from each other. Her perception of the human-divine divide... And that she was losing Psyche, that Psyche was going away to a place where she couldn't follow, where she couldn't reach her. Even though, ironically, what Psyche was doing was inviting Orowal to join her, right? Um, saying that she would, um, you know, ask her husband and that she that Orowal might be allowed uh, into the palace. And indeed, it's soon after that that she's given the glimpse of the palace. Um, her perception of her confrontation with the gods resonates with all of that human, human and divine things stuff that we've been seeing for many, many chapters now. Right? I knew I was facing them. I with no strength and they with all. I visible to them, they invisible to me, just like the palace. I easily wounded, like she wounded herself in the arm. Already so wounded that all my life had been but a hiding and staunching of the wound, just like her arm, which was staunched with the bandage and then concealed from the fox, even when, by embracing her, he touched her wounded arm and she almost... She had to try to keep from screaming. Remember, so she, she both hid and staunched her own wound that she inflicted on herself with her own knife? Yeah, she is easily wounded. Um, not least because she's the one wielding the knife against herself, though she's not aware of that particular irony here. I easily wounded, they invulnerable. I won, they many. Even that is kind of an irony, isn't it? Um... I won, they many. Um, the experience that she had, the arguments that she made to Psyche was that Psyche was alone on the other side of the river, right? On the other side of this boundary. 
and she, Orowal, was there as the spokesperson for all the rest of the humanity. Right? The fox and Bardia both agree with me. Right? Um, she was the, the spokesperson of humankind that she, Psyche, should come back. Right? And yet, her perception, her feeling, is I alone. They are many. Um, the last thing she can do is to speak the truth. Um, to write the case against them. Wanders over the earth, weeping, weeping, always weeping. How long had the old man been going on? That one word rang in my ears as if he had repeated it a thousand times. I set my teeth and my soul stood on guard. A moment more and I should have begun to hear the sound myself again. She would have been weeping in that little wood outside the temple door. That's enough, I shouted. Do you think I don't know a girl cries when her heart breaks? Go on, go on. Wanders, weeping, weeping, always weeping. He said, notice, this is a memorized story, but that Weeping, weeping, always weeping is clearly a, a refrain, like a liturgical refrain in the, in the religion of Istra here. And falls under the power of Talapal, who hates her. Now, pay attention, because this is very important. We are here being given... Now, as I say, this is... He's, the sacred story is the original myth, right? And to this point... Um, this, what, what the priest is told already, right up until the point where Orwell decides to write the book, is all the first half of the myth. That's what we've been covering in book one, right? We will now, for the first time, because we've never gotten any hint of what Psyche's story was after she was cast out to wander, right? How did Psyche's story end? The queen has never known, right? So now, where before... In book one, we've gotten the whole story of Orowal and Psyche, and only at the very end of book one do we hear the original myth, which sounds really strange compared to the story that we've learned. Now we're going to get the end of the myth before we learn or experience any of the rest. So it's, it's this pivot, right? It, there's, this, there's this reversal, this symmetry um, that C.S. Lewis is going to do here, right? So, so we've got to pay close attention because this is going to be very important for book two. What happens to Psyche when she is caught and kicked out? And falls under the power of Talapal, who hates her. And of course, Yalim can't protect her because Talapal is his mother and he's afraid of her. So Talapal torments Istra and sets her to all manner of hard labors, things that seem impossible. But when Istra has done them all, then at last Talapal releases her and she is reunited to Yalim and becomes a goddess. Then we take off her black veil, and I change my black robe for a white one, and we offer... You mean she will someday be reunited to the god, and you will take off her veil then? When is this to happen? We take off the veil, and I change my robe in spring. Do you think I care what you do? Has the thing itself happened yet or not? Is Istra now wandering over the earth, or has she already become a goddess? Myth and history again, right? The priest is like, I'm telling you about our rituals, right? Um, uh, and she's like, I want to know the history. 
right? Um, Arjun paid brush, yes. She's enslaved to Ungit. That would be the parallel. Yes, yes. Um, and Ungit sets her to do all manner of hard labors, things that seem impossible. She sets her to perform impossible tasks. And if she can perform these, in, these, these impossible tasks, then she can be perhaps forgiven and reunited. Uh, they're like... Um, this, of course, the original myth, right, is here invoking a very traditional motif. Um, there are many myths... Um, where somebody comes to woo the uh, to to woo in marriage the uh, the child of a divine or monstrous being, right? Who sets um, impossible tasks? Like uh, you, yes, you may you may marry my child, but only if you perform this theoretical theoretical task, which you will either not possibly be able to do or which will certainly get you killed um, and then I won't have to worry about it. This starting to sound at all familiar? Do anybody anybody else know anywhere else where this myth has maybe come in in a story that we all know? <laughs> right? A lot like Thingol and Baron and Luthien. Yes, indeed. Also, again, bunches and bunches of other, of other, um, of other myths. Hercules' labors in some ways, um, Jason uh, and the Golden Fleece, um, uh, the story of the giant is Bathedon, um, uh in the marriage of Colhook and Olwen in the Mabinogian, um, lots and lots of versions of this kind of story, right? And so it's apparently that's what Talapal, Ungit, um, uh, Aphrodite does. Um, and when it's complete, if she can do that, then she will be reunited to Yalim and become a goddess. And Orawal is desperate to know, did, when has it happened yet? Has the thing itself happened yet or not? On the one hand, you'd think like, yes on account of she's being worshipped here in this temple you're standing in, right? That the very sacred story she's been hearing is evidence. The fact that there's now a goddess called Istra and that the, her, the story of Psyche is the sacred story, it's suggestive evidence, right, of how the story in fact ended. But, um, uh, but Orwell is not really thinking about that, right? Um, but notice how do they signify that Istra becomes a goddess when she changes her black veil for a white veil which is like Orwell's veil it's almost like she also shall be Psyche But stranger, the sacred story is about the sacred things, the things we do in the temple. In spring and all summer she is a goddess, and when harvest comes we bring a lamp into the temple in the night, and the god flies away. Then we veil her, and all winter she is wandering and suffering, weeping, always weeping. He knew nothing. The story and the worship were all one in his mind. He could not understand what I was asking. 
I've heard your story told otherwise, old man, said I. I think the sister, or the sisters, might have more to say for themselves than you know. You may be sure that they would have plenty to say for themselves, he replied. The jealous always have. Why, my own wife now. I saluted him and went out of that cold place into the warmth of the wood. Um, the weeping, always weeping, is ritual. Tied to, an, to a temple ritual in the autumn after the harvest. Um, notice how the very blessing of the land has become... It's also now... Notice this is also like the Persephone myth as well. Um, um, it's a ritual of lamentation, yes. It's uh, the very blessing and fertility of the land in spring through harvest is a result like the great sacrifice that Psyche herself was in. Um, yes, Istra has become a fertility goddess now, Yarrow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, yes. Yeah. Corey, that is phenomenal. Um, I was debating whether and when to bring that up, but you're right. Um, Istra is probably, the name Istra is probably derived from the pagan goddess whose name is given to Easter. Let's just hold on to that little fact for a little bit. For a final crowning piece of genius by Lewis here. Um, uh, more later. Um, Notice, again, the multiple layers of irony here in the conversation. Um, uh, um, the queen knows the real story, right? I think the sister might have more to say for themselves than you know. In fact, I'm planning to write a whole book about that, right? Um, and then the simplicity of the priest. Oh, Sure, they definitely would. The jealous always have. And he is so wrong. But he's so not wrong <laughs> also. Right? Um, uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, uh, so anyhow. Okay. Um, Next day I understood more clearly. I could never be at peace again till I had written my charge against the gods. It burned me from within. It quickened. I was with book as a woman is with child. The queen is pregnant again, but she's not unpregnant this time. This time there is in fact something growing within her. Um, uh... Yes, exactly. Her unpregnancy has reversed itself. And what is it instead? It's a book. And what is that book? She is now pregnant with the, um, the accusation against the gods. Right? The, the, is she going to bring forth a, a living thing? Yeah. And Liz, you're exactly right. We should absolutely be thinking about the connection between Orwal and the book. Right? The book is Orwal. 
or is Orwal the book? What is the relationship between the queen and Orwal and the book? She was pregnant. She was imprisoning Orwal in her womb before, bricking her up in there. Now the book is growing there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, by the way, Morgul Hamster was asking if you're, uh, yeah, I was with book as a woman with child. Do writers actually feel that way? Um, C.S. Lewis did. He described it that way, actually. Um, this, is, this is an interesting little autobiographical point, um, is that he, uh, I don't remember where it was precisely, but I remember him making that exact, um, that exact metaphor um, when he described the process of writing a book. Um, yeah, yeah, I <laughs> Jackie, <laughs> Jackie, you seem to object to this metaphor. <laughs> um, uh, but he never had a child. I, I agreed. I agreed. That's <laughs> not an exact equivalence. Um, uh, when C.S. Lewis talked about it, the way that he was, the metaphor that he was made, the way he was making the comparison is the way that it is, it is a thing that grows inside you of its own volition. Like, it's not you growing. It's, an, it's, an, it's, a, it's a living thing that is growing and forming and, like, sooner or later, it is going to come out. Like, it just has to come out. Like, you can't just keep it in. You can't stop it growing. Um, uh, and it's often really painful. Um, when it <laughs> comes out, and those are the, that's the comparison that he was that he was making. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, okay. Um, all day and often all night too. I was recalling every passage of the true story, dragging up terrors, humiliations, struggles, and anguish that I had not thought of for years. Letting Orwal wake and speak, digging her almost out of a grave, out of the walled well. The more I remembered, the more still I could remember, often weeping beneath my veil as if I had never been queen, yet never in so much sorrow that my burning indignation did not rise above it. I was in haste, too. I must write it all quickly before the gods found some way to silence me. Um, uh, okay. Um, so, notice, by the way, the explicit, like the queen herself, makes the connection between the walled well uh, with Orowal here um, and connects it to a grave. Also, therefore, remember implicitly with the unpregnancy, her womb itself has been like a grave. Um, fitting in that way that, remember, like losing her virginity by killing her first man and then her womb is like a grave. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, She lets Orwell wake and so this paragraph invites us, essentially, I think, to go back and reread the whole of book one again. We've talked about the honesty of the Queen as narrator, right? The geriatric Orwell. Um, how little she hides, how much evidence she actually gives against herself, right? And we now understand it better, right? Um, she's letting Orowal wake and speak. Orowal is being resurrected, let out of the grave, out of the tomb, out of the walled well. 
the more I remembered, the more still I could remember. All these things, all these details keep coming back to her. And they keep coming out of her, and she's weeping beneath her veil as if I had never been queen. Right, Orowal is returning and the queen is going away. So the war between the queen and Orowal is something that I think still is being um, played out through the whole narrative of this. Um, it would be, we don't have time this evening, but it would be fascinating right after this paragraph to go back and reread, you know, the first 19 chapters of this book and think about it in this way. Think about it from this perspective. The Orowal and the Queen and what she is seeing, remembering more the more she remembers. All these things coming back to these things. When we, when we see in retrospect... We saw the clarity of her memory in so many places, but it hits us much harder in our own memory of those passages when we think of how they have been walled up, how they've been bricked up in her own memory, in the Queen's memory. Um, yeah. Mary, yeah, it does sound that even when she's entirely alone, she keeps the veil on. Yes. Yes. Um, these last two slides I'm just going to read. They're tremendously important as they're the tremendously important springboard into book two. We're going to come back to them next time because they're going to be really relevant. This is a, this is like the closing argument of Orwell's book, right? Because of course, by now, um, she has finished writing the book. She's, talking here about her urgency to write the book lest the gods stop her and silence her. But we know that that won't happen because we've been reading the book and it's now over. Book one is the queen's book, Orwell's book, her accusation against the gods, as she said at the very beginning of it, right? So let's read the conclusion of Orwell's book, the end, the last thing that she wanted to say. And remember, we're supposed to judge. We, who are at least kind of like in some way, the wise Greeks that she was addressing. Yet at last, after infinite hindrances, I made my book, and here it stands. Now, you who read, judge between the gods and me. They gave me nothing in the world to love but Psyche, and then took her from me. But that was not enough. They then brought, her to, they then brought me to her at such a place in time that it hung on my word whether she should continue in bliss or be cast out into misery. They would not tell me whether she was the bride of a god, or mad, or a brute's or villain's spoil. They would give no clear sign, though I begged for it. I had to guess. And because I guessed wrong, they punished me. What's worse, punished me through her. And even that was not enough. They have now sent out a lying story, in which I was given no riddle to guess, but knew and saw that she was the god's bride, and of my own will destroyed her, and that for jealousy, as if I were another Redival. I say the gods deal very unrightly with us, for they will neither, which would be best of all, go away and leave us to live our own short days to ourselves, nor will they show themselves openly and tell us what they would have us do, for that too would be endurable. 
but to hint and hover, to draw near us in dreams and oracles or in a waking vision that vanishes as soon as seen, to be dead silent when we question them and then glide back and whisper words we cannot understand in our ears when we most wish to be free of them and to show and, and to show to one what they might hide from another? What is all this but cat-and-mouse play, blind man's buff, and mere, juggler, mere jugglery? Why must holy places be dark places? I say, therefore, that there is no creature, toad, scorpion, or serpent, so noxious to man as the gods. Let them answer my charge if they can. It may well be that instead of answering, they'll strike me mad or leprous or turn me into a beast, bird, or tree. But will not all the world then know, and the gods will know it knows, that this is because they have no answer? Whew. Okay. And that's the closing statement of Orwell's accusation against the gods. Okay, I can't help but one little thing. Remember toad scorpions or serpents? Remember how toads came up before in the story? Earlier reference to toads? Everything that comes up in this book is important later. Everything. Remember? Yes, exactly, Devorah. Psyche's unchancy love for ugly things. Um, remember how Psyche loved toads and serpents and scorpions and things when she was little? Um, she had the most unchancy love for, uh, for ugly things. Um, and even the ugly things were made beautiful when she paid attention to them. Right? Anyway, um, uh, this is another way. The tightness of this book like that Right, is another way in which I, I think Lewis is trying to show us Orwell, the more she remembers, the more she remembers, even though she doesn't understand it. She doesn't see it all, right? All these things she sees looking back. She has gone back and notice she has now officially and actually done what she accused the gods of doing. She has gone and rewritten history backwards, right? She has written the story of her life and Psyche's life. Um, and now what, um, what, what to make of it all? Um, Tune in next time when we begin book two of Till We Have Faces. Um, when the queen picks up her pen again. Um, this, the sequel. The sequel to, to, to the queen's book here. Um, by the way, when I was preparing, we, we did it. That's the end of book one. Um, and we're only a little bit late. Um, when I was preparing my slides tonight, I, um, I was pasting the passages into the slides and I'm like, oh man, we're never going to get through all this. I really, really want to, but we're never going to get through all this. And, um, but then I saw there was a sign. Right? Do you know how many slides there were tonight? 17. Exactly the number that we covered in two classes in a row earlier on. So I took hope. 
I took that as a sign that we would, in fact, be able to complete all of our slides tonight just as we completed our 17 slides in earlier uh, sessions in this in this class. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I agree, JJ. Book two is so short uh, that uh, we'll probably be done uh, in 10 or 15 minutes or something like that. Uh, almost, almost certainly. Um, for next time, read the first two chapters of book two and we'll see how we do. <laughs> no promises, but read the first two chapters of book two, um, which should be chapters 22 and 23. I think they're, they're, they're numbered continuously, which is important, I think. Um, so chapters 22 and 23, and um, we'll, 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 no promises we're going to complete those next time, but we'll see how we do. All right. Thanks, everybody. Isn't this amazing? Oh, like the payoff in this book is just unbelievable. I, um, the ending of Till We Have Faces is about as brilliant, and I mean that on several levels, um, radiant, splendid, a conclusion of a book as I know of. I, I just, I don't think I could point to another book that ends more majestically, more satisfyingly, more mind-blowingly than Till We Have Faces does. Um, anyway, so more soon. We'll keep going. Thanks, everybody. Uh, have a great night, and I'll see you guys next time. Bye now. <laughs>